The month of May, we know, acknowledges the time then before our Lord, and Cindy will have an opportunity to do that for us a little bit later. It's also a month of grad, for graduations, typically. What you may not know, unless you're sort of an avid outdoors person, is that May is the month, and specifically about a week period, where people who want to ascend to the summit of Everest can actually do so. It's the only time of the year where there's a decent weather window to do that. I can't think of about ascending Everest. It is a perilous journey. You, it, I can't think of something <laughs> that's worse than that. It's 29,000 feet. It is, uh, most people aren't acclimated to it, so they have to do a series of three different hikes, being, you know, each at a succeedingly higher elevation. There's a place called the Zone of Death, which is at 26,000 feet. Beyond that, the human body's ability to deal with oxygen deprivation is problematic. And unless you take oxygen with you, you are in great peril of your life. But all those practices and all those precautions aside, you will not make it to the summit unless you are with a Sherpa. A Sherpa is someone who actually is indigenous to the area. Many of the Sherpas that accompany each of these mountaineer enthusiasts are, are ones who were trained and, and their families did it before them, their fathers and their grandfathers. There's a, I saw a profile of a particular one named Kami Rita Sherpa, who holds the record for the number of summits ascended, 24 to be specific, in 25 years. And he talks about what the role of the Sherpa is. They make sure that each of the climbers has what they need, the oxygen that they need, they, the rest that they need, the, and they will do most of the carrying of the equipment that the mountaineer requires. But they also provide a really invaluable service, which is to call time on any mountaineer, any aspirant to the summit who is in trouble, who needs, the Sherpa will look, and based on their experience, if that person is incapable of going farther, they will say, it's time to head back. And they will assist that person if they need that. The Sherpas are invaluable, even though there's lots of glory that a person might personally claim for having done that, and it's certainly a costly endeavor, and it becomes more and more popular every year. There's actually traffic jams at the top. Nevertheless, you will not get there without a Sherpa. As Kamirita says, without a Sherpa, there is no expedition. I hope that that's a helpful frame for understanding the theme of this week, which is the Jesus, our great shepherd. The readings that you heard were about that theme of Jesus as the Good Shepherd. He calls himself the Good Shepherd. In our liturgical calendar, this is known as Good Shepherd Sunday. And in the theme of Eastertide, to, to be in the joy of the presence of the Lord means that, that not only do we celebrate what he has done for us on the cross, but we recognize that we need to continually follow him and have him lead us each and every day. And I want us to explore in our time together what that means that Jesus is the Good Shepherd. Where, and looking at it in, in three ways. Where is he leading us? A shepherd always has a place in mind for the sheep. There's always a place that where, where the sheep will be free from harm and danger, will have nourishment, will have what they need to not only live and, 
and, but also to thrive. Where is it that Jesus is leading us? How is it that he as the good shepherd helps us along the way? Because if you've ever seen a sheep or if you've read about sheep, uh, you know that they don't follow really well, that they need help, that they get stuck in places they shouldn't be stuck. How is it that Jesus, the good shepherd, helps us? And then finally, after those two things, what is it, what, how do we actually follow him? He's leading us to a place. He's helping us get out of places that we don't belong. He's guiding us along the way. But then there's also an aspect of us following along with him. What does that look like? Well, as they say, I'm glad you asked. Let, let's look at this. Where is Jesus leading us? I think the reading of of. Revelation specifically, where the vision, John is given a vision, and he says, I looked and behold me, there's a great multitude that no one can count. They are from every tribe and from every nation, from every part of history, every people, every language, and they're all together. There are so many of them, and they're doing one thing. They're worshiping before the throne. They're saying, along with the elders, the 24 elders and the other heavenly beings, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen, praise and glory, and wisdom and thanks and honor, power and strength to be to our God forever and ever. Towards the end of that passage, John is quoting from his own gospel, for the Lamb at the center of the throne, will be their shepherd. This is the fulfillment of the prophecy. He will lead them to springs of living water. Where are they? They are now in that spring of living water, in the presence of God, and praising Him. Now John is writing this to a church that's under persecution. So the heavenly place that they are, that he puts, in, that he puts there in front of them, is a place that, that is meant to encourage them. That is meant to say that all the stuff that you're going now is not what will be the end of your life. In fact, it is just the beginning of your life with Christ that when you are with Him, all the things that have happened, the, the, you're dressed in white, and this is, the, this is in part the, the clothing of the martyrs, those that have given their lives here in this time on this earth for the Lord. And so He is leading us to that place where we will have living water, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. I, I think that's a timely word for us in this time and this era where so many things of this world and, and, what, and the times that we're in seek to press us into its mold. There's all kinds of competing ideas of, of what it means to follow a Messiah. People want to know. They, they, they want you to... to there's just other ideas of what it means to dedicate your life to something, to make every effort to achieve something, to have a certain particular identity that has a transcendence. But Jesus is saying, as the good shepherd, I have given you all those things. Your identity is in Christ. It is the supreme identity that each of us has and enjoy if we belong to him. The life that you have is one to be lived in, in my presence and in my joy and in my calling. And yes, in this life, it will mean challenge and it will mean difficulty and it will mean being called to be a witness to the Lord in times and places that at a minimum are inconvenient and our, our, our flesh will revolt and say, I don't want to do that. But the Lord will make a way and help us to understand what that would look like. The church is under persecution, but we need to beware of times where 
other parts of this world offer a false salvation. Think of uh, Bar Kokhba. Simon Bar Kokhba, 131 AD, decided that, that he actually was the Messiah. But his idea of being the Messiah was essentially to kick out the Romans from their occupation, now centuries old, of Jerusalem and Judea. And so he got followers around him. He made laws. He signed contracts. He had his own coinage minted. And he picked a fight. And like a lot of messianic things that are not of God but of, are of human endeavor, it succeeded for a time until the Romans really had had enough and they pushed hard against it. And in the end, it only lasted a couple years, ending in great loss of life for the Jews of the day, a lot of Roman loss of life as well. But the Romans made sure they depopulated much of Jerusalem. They forbade any Jews from being in Jerusalem. They burned the Torah and scrolls. They put up a statue, I think it was of Zeus and of Hadrian, on the Temple Mount. They wanted to obliterate the history of the Israelites, the history of the Jews. See, false messiahs offer a particular promise, but very often it makes the situation far worse. We follow a messiah that doesn't lead at the front of an army, but he leads with humility. He leads by leading consistently. He leads, and I love the image of this, as a shepherd, as one who is gentle among us, but who looks out for us. So where is he leading us? To this place of paradise, to this place of joy. But let that be an encouragement to us in whatever challenge we're facing, in whatever concern we have, in whatever our view of the future is that may not be encouraging to us. Know that God has a future beyond what we can see. And we get a glimpse of it in this revelation. So that's where he's leading us. How does he help us along the way? You know, where is Jesus as we're making this journey? Uh, my cousin and I recently went back east to get a little cousin time and hang out, a little historical tour, spent some time in D.C., took in a few Civil War battlefields. We went to Antietam. That was the first place we went. Some of you, if you know your history, knew, know that in 1862, in September, this became what became the, the largest and bloodiest battle of the Civil War until its time. There are over 125,000 soldiers engaged on both sides in this. The end of the day, one day battle, over 22,000 casualties had been recorded. So it's known for that hideous fact, but it's also known as more or less a near-run Union victory, enough so that Abraham Lincoln, within less than a week after that battle, could proclaim what we know as the Emancipation Proclamation freeing the slaves on January 1st, 1863. But he needed a victory in order to do that. Otherwise, it would look like desperation. So that's how Antietam is, is framed, usually in the American psyche. On that battlefield, we saw such things, and we saw the battles, the ways that the battle went and the particular fighting. But what I also noticed there was a plaque to a woman named Clara Barton. Some of you may know her as as one of the first battlefield nurses in the Civil War. She had been a teacher for a variety, you know, many years. Later after that, she was a, a patent clerk in D.C. But when the first casualties from the fighting of the Civil War came in, she went down to the train station just to help, just to help minister, help provide some encouragement, some care, some comfort. That, that just began to occupy her, 
her mind and her heart so that she began to gather supplies of all kinds to help more and more casualties which were coming. That was part of the surprise of the war. People didn't expect it to be as bad as it was. And eventually, pretty soon after that, she would start to visit battlefields with these things. Wagons full of, of things that wounded soldiers needed. And she goes to Antietam, which is why there's a plaque there to honor her. And she begins to minister. I mean, the, the places the wounded were coming in beyond what people could handle. Surgeons were working around the clock, often in candlelight. And one, that night she provided lanterns to them so that they could see better. But this began a work in her that eventually led to, after the war, what we know as the American Red Cross. She was the founder of that. And what we know as the Red Cross and its, its, its endeavor of dealing with natural disasters, this was the evolution of her heart. Why do I say that? Because I think it's a, she's a, a good way to understand how Christ, as the Good Shepherd, comes alongside of us in our own places of woundedness. While he calls us on this journey, he knows that we are not 100%. He knows that we still have things that we're dealing with, issues that we're struggling with, sins that still beset us, and that doesn't disqualify us, but rather he walks with us along the way. I don't know about you, that's really pretty encouraging. It can be any number of things. You know, we're free from these sins, but when we continue to, while we may be free from the, the things that once offended God because of the work that Christ has done, oftentimes our minds and our thinking are still in these grooved patterns. You know, it's one of the reasons why Paul says to the new church, he says, look, get rid of rage and anger and slander and things from, from your lips and from your mind. These are the ways you used to be, but you're no longer like that. But our minds, as I said, can be grooved in these places. How do you ungroove them? Sometimes we say, all right, Lord, take an example. If you're prone to anger or just sort of outburst and you think, huh, I know that's not good, Lord. Sorry, forgive me for doing that. And then you feel forgiveness and then we go on to the next day and then something else happens and that cycle repeats. See that the Lord who comes alongside us in these journeys comes alongside with our woundedness and wants to talk. So rather than in the next time something happens that you know you don't want to happen, and just hear the Lord's gentle voice saying, what's going on with that? How are you in that? Where's that anger coming from? If I look at some of the things that, that get me irritated or upset, most of the time it's from source of I have this vision of my life or how things should be going for my day that's independent of any dependence on God, my shepherd. It's like, thank you, Lord, I got the keys. Like a kid gets keys to the cars. I got it. I'm, I'm out. I'm just going to drive. I'll see you when I get home. Parking in the driveway, don't wait up for me, leave the light on. Sometimes we can feel like, take our, treat our life like that, as if we're independent. But why would we want to be independent of the Lord's love and his care and the things that we need to, to glorify him and to experience from him? So the Lord comes alongside. He helps us by being the one who, who understands our issues, understands our weaknesses, understands those grooved patterns of our mind and our heart. And the only thing I really want to exhort by way of application is just to stop, interrupt that cycle next time something happens and just say, Lord, let's talk about this. Or listen to him extend that invitation to us and have that dialogue. Third aspect of our time for understanding the Lord as the, great, the good shepherd, the great shepherd, is how do we follow him? The, 
the first reading that was read is from the book of Acts. And it's, it's actually Paul preaching to the people at city in Antioch, to the Jews. And he's saying, he's saying, I'll tell you the good news, what God promised our ancestors. He has filled for us their children by raising up Jesus, as it is written in the second psalm, and then he quotes that. And then he comes to the heart of the matter, and he says, therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to attain under the law of Moses. Everyone who believes is set free from every sin. This is the gospel that Paul is preaching. The gospel that says Jesus is alive and he is the first fruits of resurrection, which means that we will not die if we are in him. And it means that every sin that we have committed or will commit is covered by him. That is indeed the good news. So how is it that we can follow him in the context of that? I think it is this way. That, that Paul is preaching the gospel, in a sense, because Jesus is no longer there to preach the gospel. Jesus has ascended to the right hand of his Father. And he has commissioned his disciples, go into all the world, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And this is what Paul is doing in obedience to that. Jesus is the, the chief shepherd, Peter calls him. But we are called under-shepherds in other places of Scripture. Part of what it means to follow the Lord, part of what it means to experience him, him, him as the Good Shepherd is to see Him take that, if I could use the word, shepherdness, and put it into us that we might be able to be His compassion, His hands, His feet, His forgiveness in the lives of those around us and His gospel. You know, Acts is amazing for how many gospel presentations there are if you go through it. If you wanted to make a podcast of gospel presentation. You, you wouldn't do much better than to going through Acts and just, we could call it gospel podcast. We could start with Peter because that's where it starts. Peter, tell me about your gospel podcast. And then Peter would say something. And then our next guest next week will be Stephen. Now Stephen only has one sermon that's recorded, but it's a big one. And it results actually in his martyrdom. But the, such is the gospel that he wants the Jews to know who this Christ is, and he wants them to know that they've actually crucified him. Probably not part of the gospel that we would be preaching, but we would preach that Jesus has died for people. Later on, it comes to Peter, excuse me, Paul, and he's preaching the gospel in numerous places. Three times his own testimony about the road to Damascus shows up. Today, as we consider Jesus as our good shepherd, I close by looking at John's gospel. The conclusion of after he has, Jesus has spoken of himself as the good shepherd, he says, as we heard Cindy read, the sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. If we are to follow our good shepherd, we are to hear his voice, to listen, and then to act, to, to go where he's leading us trusting that he's leading us in the right way and not worrying about things that we've done in the past because he is there along the way to bind our wounds and to continue to lead us. If I return to that sort of gospel podcast idea, if, if the, 
leader of the, or the host of the podcast would interview Peter, what would he say? He would say something like, Peter, it's great to have you on the show. So nice to, to actually hear that podcast that you preached right after everybody got anointed with the Holy Spirit. But honestly, I understand that you may not have been there. In fact, I actually heard, was this true, Peter, that you denied Jesus three times? Did that, did that really happen? And Peter would say, it happened. Actually, I was the last guy in the room that thought it would happen, but it happened. I thought that I would go with the Lord to the end because I'm his guy. But it didn't happen that way. In fact, when he needed me most, I denied him not only once, but I denied him three times. And if you know anything about Israelite culture, to deny somebody three times means to make it permanent, means to make it like this is wrapped and sealed and done three times. I denied Jesus. And the host might say, and what would you do after that? Well, I went out and I wept and I wept and I wept. And I thought I was useless for anything good following the Lord. I had heard that he was raised from the dead. I went and saw the empty tomb. I wasn't quite sure, but he started to appear to me. But at one point, I was so distraught, I just went fishing. I didn't know what was next. But he went to find me. He sought me out. He, Jesus. I'm fishing with some guys, and he yells to me, from, yells to us from the shore. And the next minute, somebody says, it's the Lord. And so we go in there, and he has breakfast waiting for us. But then he, he, I'm so overjoyed, but then he takes me aside and he says, Peter, do you love me? I say, yes, Lord. He says, feed my sheep. Then he asked me a second time, Peter, do you love me? And I say, yes, Lord. And he says, tend my flock. And he asked me a third time, I'm getting a little frustrated. Do you love me? And Lord, you know all things, I tell him. You know I love you. And feed my sheep. And then I realize he's restoring me in that moment. I denied him three times, but three times he asked me this question, superseding anything I could have done to seal the call that he has upon my life. That's why when I wrote my first epistle, I don't call Jesus the good shepherd. I call him the chief shepherd. Because he is, what he's done for me, he wants me to do for others around and all other apostles. Today, we honor, we celebrate, we give thanks for Jesus, our good shepherd. May he give us the wisdom that we need to understand where he's leading us and to just be, to really look to that place, that summit, if you will in the midst of all the stuff that we're in the middle of. And then to see when we look at our own strength and flag and fail and get challenged and get irritable, to see him binding our wounds, to see him gently coming and speaking to us that we might change the habitual thoughts in our mind. And finally, to understand and to enter in and to push, press into the privilege that he gives us to, to be under shepherds to be preaching as Paul did and preaching as Peter did, to be loving as, as he was, to be serving as Martha did, to, to be compassionate as Barnabas was, to be generous as Barnabas was. All the disciples have some particular aspect of their life in Christ that was a blessing. 
and he is not done doing that in our lives. So may we follow after as good sheep, as faithful sheep, but not perfect sheep, the good shepherd of our lives. Amen. Thanks for being with us online in the sermon podcast. To find out more about Holy Trinity Silicon Valley, head to www.holytrinitysv.org.